0: Few performers, black or white, have ever matched the sheer star power of Lena Horne. But her path to that stardom was, was not necessarily an, an easy road. And she had to struggle against expectations of others and even the, the, uh, the high standards that she set for herself. And it wasn't, it, as I said, it wasn't always easy for her. She was born in Brooklyn, New York. And her parents were both a product of middle-class African-American families. Her paternal grandmother was very active in the women's suffrage movement and very instrumental in the early years of the NAACP. In fact, she registered Lena for membership in the NAACP when she was two years old. Her parents' marriage was uh, unfortunately short lived Her father had a what was considered to be a, a good and promising job as a civil servant in um, in the state of New York, but he was much more interested in in better opportunities and more money than he could make in a legitimate job, and as Lena said, he was ultimately a sort of lost to the racketeering and and numbers running world. She always loved him, but it was a, a situation that was difficult for her because he abandoned the family when she was just three years old. That left Lena and her mother living in the same house with uh, with her father's parents and there was an estranged relationship really between Lena's mother and those in-laws and so a short time after, uh, after Lena's father took off, her mother left the household too, hoping to pursue a career as, a, uh, as an actress. And she joined the, um, the Lafayette Players, which was one of the few um, legitimate black theater companies. And when I say legitimate, it meant that the theater that they were performing was classical drama, Shakespeare, not simply the, the sort of music hall or, 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 or vaudeville kinds of performances. So Lena was left in the care of her grandparents but periodically her mother would resurface after a period of time on the road performing and Mm -hmm. reclaim her and so she bounced back and forth between this very stable environment in her Mm -hmm. uh, her grandparents middle-class home in Brooklyn and this sort of gypsy life on the road with her mother often uh, traveling through the South. When she was 15 years old, uh, both of her grandparents died within a few months of each other. She had at that point been living with her grandparents again, and her mother then resurfaced, um, remarried to a, a white uh, Cuban-born um Gentleman named um, Mr. Rodriguez, and Lena found herself now living with her with her mother and her stepfather. They weren't uh, they weren't welcome in the Brooklyn neighborhood where Lena's grandparents had lived, and so they they resettled in the Bronx. It was the height of the depression. It's um, 1933, and not an easy time for anyone, and her stepfather, with his limited English skills, fi- has a terrible time finding work. Her mother isn't in good health, and Lena drops out of high school in order to um, to help support the family, and her mother's connections in the theater are what land her an audition at the Cotton Club. Of course, this is the cabaret in Harlem on Lenox Avenue that was Originally run by a white gangster um, who had bought it from the from the great boxer uh, Jack Johnson, the Cotton Club was celebrated for African-American performance, but it didn't admit African-American patrons, at least not for many years. Sooner or later, uh, there was an opportunity for some African-American patrons to, to come to the club, but they were usually seated uh, close to the kitchen, and they were generally people who were involved in, sort of the, uh, in, the, in the black underworld, and it was their underworld connections that got them in. Lena joined up as a chorus girl, she wasn't singing at this point, simply dancing. And the, re- the requirement for the Cotton Club to be in the chorus was that one be tall, tan, and terrific. And Lena, of course, fit that bill perfectly. She was a extraordinarily beautiful. She was just 16. Most of the chorus performers were in their 20s. So her mother made a point of being on hand constantly. Her mother was an ever-present, really an ever-present figure. The typical stage mother who watched over but also made demands that made life a bit more difficult for Lena. Um, Her stepfather also got involved and after she had been performing there for a more than a year, there was an opportunity, and she got to do a, a song and dance number with one, of the, with one of the Cotton Club's leading stars. After that, her parents were pushing for her to get more featured roles, uh, and the management at the Cotton Club wasn't really ready to, um, you know, to accede to those demands, and her, fa- her stepfather ended up really badly roughed up in an encounter with some of the heavies at the club. She was able to appear briefly in a Broadway show that only ran for nine performances and her role in that was was simply a a dancing role. But she figured that once her stepfather got roughed up she was going to have to get out of the Cotton Club and the only way she could do that was really to to run away. She was able to audition with Noble Sissel's Society Orchestra. Attended the audition in Philadelphia and was signed on. Now, Noble Sissel had uh, had a very popular band, and she was really surprised that she got the job because she said she wasn't really much of a singer at that point. She had she could carry a tune, but that was about it. Well, Noble Sissel knew talent when he saw it, and he set about nurturing and and being a mentor for her. Well, her parents, her mother and stepfather, weren't about to let her out of their sights, so they. They sort of joined on as well and traveled on the bus with Lena as the band toured. It wasn't easy touring with a black um, orchestra in the 1930s. The you know accommodations were limited. They, uh, very often there were no hotels that would take them. They roomed with you know with families. It was a it was a difficult experience. And having for Lena having her parents along didn't make things any better. Her parents squabbled quite a bit. Um, they got. Unhappy with um, just how prominent or not prominent a role they felt she had with with Noble Sissel, and were uh, sort of pressuring him to, to you know to do more with her. Eventually, um, Noble Sissel sort of ejected her stepfather from the from the from the tour, and Lena was able uh, later on to uh, to also sort of ditch her mother and make uh, spend Christmas in 1936 with um, with her father in Pittsburgh. He had come back into her life when she was performing with. With Noble Sissel's orchestra in the Midwest and during that time um, at home in, in Pittsburgh in his home in 1936 she renewed a friendship with a young man that had, she had met with when he had been traveling with her father earlier and his name was Lewis Jones. Uh, they had a very uh, quick and you know quick romance and got married very quickly. Um, everyone was concerned that the marriage wasn't you know wasn't going to last, but they were in love and they weren't going to listen to you know to anyone uh, trying to dissuade them. Uh, within a year, their first child was born, but the marriage was just um, was really difficult from from the start. Uh, her husband expected her to be a homemaker and um, and stay home and not be on the road and not be involved in show business particularly. Uh, he wasn't making very much money and she was used to a lot more income as a result of her of, um, of her professional career. So the marriage uh, was, you know, was not terribly sound. She had an opportunity to put in an appearance uh, just in a featured role in an independently produced Hollywood film and so she went out to Hollywood to um, to do that. The film was called The Duke Is Tops. And, once she got out there, the production was delayed, so she was away longer than she expected. Um, she came back. She and her um, and her husband tried to reconcile. They had a second child, um, a son, but it was pretty clear that the marriage wasn't wasn't going to endure. And so, at the age of 23, with um, with two young children um, to support, she was back in New York looking for work. She was hired by um, by Charlie Barnett, who was a white band leader. He heard her perform uh, at. A, saw her during an audition for a benefit performance at the Apollo Theater. And it was quite a, quite a bold move for a white band leader to bring on as a featured and principal vocalist an African American woman. Uh, Barnett had had black musicians, a few of them in his in his band before, but to have Lena as the featured uh, vocalist was a major move. When they traveled, uh, the band did everything it could to make things easier for Lena, but oftentimes, the again, accommodations were a challenge. And when the band did an extended tour through the South, Charlie uh, urged her to, to take the time off. He knew how hard it would be for her to remain with the orchestra while they traveled. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't very long before she had an opportunity to go on the nightclub circuit, and she was she was recruited for Cafe Society, which was uh, really the place uh, in the Greenwich Village for, uh, for the elite performers. It was also a place, it was one of the few clubs, in fact, in New York, that was completely integrated outside of Harlem. And it had on its matchbook cover, it called itself the wrong place for the right people. That was where she got to know uh, Paul Robeson and a number of, of progressive forward-thinking folks. And her time at Cafe Society was, um, was a time that she really treasured. She was able to have both of her children um, at home in, uh, in her grandparents' old home in Brooklyn. Her cousin uh, came and stayed with them and it was, it was working out well. And then an invitation came to go out to Hollywood and perform at a, what was going to be a brand new nightclub called the Trocadero. It had already signed up um, a great troupe of performers. Uh, Catherine Dunham and her dance troupe was going to be out there. Um, Ethel Waters was going to be performing. Duke Ellington. All of the, you know, all of the things that would make it an attractive uh, gig for for Lena to consider were there. She really debated about whether she should go to California. She was having such success um, at the Cafe Society Cabaret that the thought of of, of pulling up stakes and moving to California was a difficult one for her. But many in New York um, and those that she really, whose opinion she valued the most, said she should go. That California and Hollywood presented a wonderful opportunity for her. She could be a trailblazer for other performers. And this was just another example, or certainly one of the early examples, of of others uh, encouraging her to do things because they felt it was going to be, uh, she could be a role model, she could, she could be the, the, uh, the path breaker for those that followed. It wasn't always necessarily what Lena wanted to do, but she felt that obligation uh, to follow through. So she went out to California, got there and found out that the fellow that was in charge of setting up this nightclub had not been able to get all of the financing he needed and by the time she got there, Catherine Dunham had pulled out, Duke Ellington had pulled out, Ethel Waters had pulled out, everyone that she had been hoping to um, to perform with was gone and the nightclub was only a dream that didn't exist. The fellow pulled up, sort of pulled himself together and, and opened a small club on the Sunset Strip And um, it wasn't a place where Catherine uh, Catherine, um, Dunham's Dunham's, uh, dance troupe could perform, because the stage was so small. In fact, they performed briefly, but they, uh, they were knocking drinks over on the tables for the customers in the front row because of the flowing costumes, and it just didn't work. But Lena was perfectly suited for this really intimate, small cabaret. And before long, in fact, almost immediately, the columnists were noting that people who never went to nightclubs were, you know, were, it was standing room only to hear this fabulous young singer performing at, um, at the Troc. A little bit later, and this is, in, um, this is in 1942, she goes out to California in 41, is performing in 42. The opportunity to audition for MGM comes along. People have been seeing her at the club. Everyone's talking about her. So she auditions for MGM. The but she does it with a great deal of trepidation because the the experience of African Americans in the movies has not been a particularly positive one. And she's very reluctant to sign a contract for fear that she will be um, stuck in stereotypical roles that won't further her career and also will won't be good role models for um, you know for other African American performers. Her father comes out um, and helps her with her negotiations with the studio. Walter White, who at that point is the, um, the head of the NAACP, also advises her. And her contract ends up being one for a seven-year contract, so it's the first long-term film studio contract with a major studio for any African-American performer. And it also includes clauses that she will, um, that when she travels to promote films, she will always be able to, um, to enter uh, the hotels through the front door, none of this sort of back through the kitchen business, and she will have the ability to, um, you know, to reject roles that are stereotypically, uh, you know, inclined. But the problem that emerges fairly quickly is the limited number of, of films that will allow her to do anything other than be simply a featured performer in a, in a number that's isolated from the plot. Her first appearance is in a film called Panama Hattie, and she sings a wonderful Cole Porter song. Everybody loves the picture, but there isn't really an acting role for her. She then is next in a film called um, Thousands Cheer, another single number. uh, Everybody loves it. And then the opportunity to really act uh, presents itself, and that's when she's cast in the all-black musical um, Cabin in the Sky, which is absolutely terrific. She plays the temptress uh, Georgia Brown and wins great uh, great notices for that. Uh, she goes on to do Stormy Weather, another opportunity where she actually gets to act. But from that point on, her film roles really are limited to these, uh, to these featured numbers where she, she talked about being pasted against a pillar. And if you've seen it, had a chance to see any of these films. She's always in an absolutely beautiful evening dress. She's stunning, she's gorgeous, and she's standing against a pillar singing her song. Well, one of the reasons that the studios did this was that they could cut that segment out of the film because it wasn't part of the, of the plot. It was simply a featured number that wasn't where her role wasn't tied to the film's narrative. Then when the films traveled through the country and, and played in theaters in the South where it, audiences would not have accepted her performances, it was just snipped out of the film, re-edited, and she never appeared. In the, during World War II, Lena was very active with the Stage Door Canteen and the USO performing for black servicemen and white servicemen as well. She was hugely popular um, with black uh, servicemen who pinned her picture up in their in their barracks and looked forward to the opportunity to, to hear her perform. One soldier said, um, some people said they, you know, they were fighting for, for Eisenhower, he said, I was fighting for Lena Horne. When she traveled to Kansas to Fort Riley to perform, it was quite typical for her to perform for segregated um, audiences, and so she would perform first for the white troops and then for the black servicemen. On this particular occasion, she had performed for 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 the white troops, and then when she was ready to perform for the black soldiers, she noticed a group of white audience members at the very front, which she asked about, it turned out that they were German prisoners of war. They had been seated at the front in, before, the black perform, before the black servicemen and at that point she refused to go on and said she was certainly not going to perform if, if, you know, if German prisoners of war were given better position and preference over, over the black um, servicemen. She complained to the NAACP, and a a formal complaint was lodged with the USO, but the USO then dropped her from their tours because she was seen as, as being difficult. She, after that, financed her own tours and continued to entertain troops for the remainder of the war. In, um, in the early 19, mid 1940s, uh, she married for uh, a second time. Her divorce from her first husband uh, was finalized in, in 1944. But the next marriage was a secret one, and that was to um, a white musician and um, arranger who had worked for NGM. They married in Paris, but they kept their marriage secret from everyone except their family until 1950. Interracial marriages in the 1940s were, you know, were certainly difficult um, at best. They were illegal in many states, and she felt, and so did her did her husband, that, that keeping their marriage quiet at least for a while was probably the best thing. She was enjoying a, a fabulous uh, career in nightclubs and was greatly in demand, also had a record contract. In 1950, though, of the anti-communism uh, wave of, of hearings by the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee began. And although Lena Horne was never uh, was never accused of being a communist, she was listed in two of the publications that were intended to sort of out people who were seen as having either communist sympathies or, for some reason, something as mere as association with uh, with you know, with so-called radical groups, your name could end up in something called Red Channels or Counter-Attack, and Lena Horne's name appeared there in 1950. She lost out on the role that she really had coveted in Hollywood, which was when MGM was uh, preparing to film the... Um, a, a, a second film version of showboat and she very much wanted the role of, of Julie the mulatto uh, the tragic mulatto figure in that musical but the role instead of going to her went to white actress Ava Gardner who was made up in the in the very makeup that Max factor had designed for uh, for Lena Horn she was blacklisted effect really uh, in terms of film um Uh, television, radio appearances, simply because of that uh, listing in uh, in Counterattack and Red Channels. But her uh, her, her career in cabarets and nightclubs fortunately was really not impacted by that they were just interested in packing in packing the house and Lena could do that without um, any difficulty at all in 1956 she met with a columnist who was very influential particularly um, in circles uh, that were involved in the blacklist and she met with him and allowed him to lecture her for about a half an hour about her, um, her, her naivete in terms of her political interests and she just sort of sat there and took it and by the time uh, that conversation was done uh, he was satisfied that she was uh, she was a good American and her name disappeared almost immediately from those lists and her opportunities to perform then opened up uh, again. She was uh, recruited very quickly for several of the major television variety shows. She signed a, a new contract with RCA Records and her her first album from them was the best-selling album by any female performer uh, that RCA had, had ever signed. She returned to Broadway in 1957 in a musical that wasn't a great hit, or at least it wouldn't have been uh, without her. Uh, the critics panned it, but her performance was what carried the show, and it ran for, I think it was something like 555 performances. She was beginning now to get active in the civil rights movement. She had never really gone out on her own to campaign uh, for equality, but as the civil rights movement was gaining steam, she she really was in, interested in, in making more of a, of a concerted effort to, to be on the front lines. She had been always involved, or at least had been involved for some time with the National Council of Negro Women, and then also with... Um, uh, with the Urban League. In 1963, she was called uh, by James Baldwin, the writer, to attend a meeting with Attorney General Robert Kennedy. Um, and at that meeting, there were other influential African Americans there, all, uh, all the people that, that Kennedy thought would be uh, good voices um, in communicating the administration's plans uh, to the black community. One of the participants in this meeting um, was an organizer for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who told horrific tales of, of what he had experienced in voter registration efforts in the South. And Lena was so... Uh, really so affected by, by his story that she immediately contacted the NAACP and asked to, um, to be assigned to work uh, for them in the South. And she went to Jackson, Mississippi, where Medgar Evers was engaged in the Jackson movement of, um, of boycotting, uh, boycotting uh, stores that had refused service um, to African Americans or at least had refused to integrate their lunch counters. He was also at that point working for, uh, for better housing and also job opportunities in the municipal government. So she went down and was involved in a voter registration drive. She performed at a benefit and then went back to New York and it was the next day that she learned that Medgar Evers had been assassinated um, in the driveway of his home. From that point on, she continued to to perform, but she worked uh, protest songs into her repertoire and became much more vocal. She was beginning to really become her own person. For so long she had um, she had maintained a particular facade it was so important for her to be to be elegant to be glamorous to be uh, to be dignified and mannered and it was a it took a toll on her to to always have to hold herself to this um, to this standard that was expected of her in the 1960s and 70s she really began to you know to to shed some of that uh, of that demure facade, speak her mind in a way that um, that her years and her experience I think had given her permission to do. She lost her her husband, her, her son, and her father within a 12-month period in between 1970 and 1971, which was extremely difficult for her, and she seriously considered uh, giving up performing altogether. But um, it was in her blood, and she was back, uh, back on stage again um, a year later. She was, of course, uh, continued to have a very successful nightclub career, and also appeared um, on Broadway with Tony Bennett in a in a wonderful uh, program that went was supposed to originally just run for a few weeks and and lasted for considerably longer. In 1981, she took her fabulous show, Lena Horne, um, A Woman and Her Music, um, to Broadway. It, it ran uh, originally, it was supposed to run for six weeks, and it continued for um, more than 300 performances. It didn't win a Tony simply because the timing of the show uh, didn't fit the, the Tony schedule, but she received a special award, as well as the New York Drama Critics Circle Award and um, two Grammys for the for the cast album. In 1974, she was Glinda, uh, the Good Witch, in the film version of The Wiz, um, which I didn't mention. She um, has been in retirement now uh, for some time, but her records are still something that people treasure, and her film appearances, were, you know, will remain. She talked about how hard it was to, as a young person particularly, particularly to really be out on the stage and so vulnerable, um, everyone there to see you. And she said that was one of the reasons that she held back in a way. She was um, she was described for uh, as, as having this, as, as being seductive but reserved. There was always this sort of coolness and elegance about her that um, she didn't want the audience to actually get to her. They could have the singer, they could have the Former, but she wanted to keep something back that was just her own, and she called it her purity. She said her purity was really important to her. It was something that she needed to keep for herself. And the facade that she had developed, that cool performance style, was part of her way of of coping with that overexposure and that and that vulnerability. What I like so much about this photograph is that it captures her elegance. There's no question that this is. this is a wonderfully glamorous figure, but if you look at it too, there's such a sense of warmth and, and humanity here. It's it's not Lena on stage in that beautiful night, you know, that beautiful uh, gown with the gardenia in her hair and the and the spotlight shining. It's it's still very elegant but it's in a relaxed um, in a relaxed posture and you can just I think sense her warmth and that was what attracted me um, to this photograph when I saw it at a photography dealers in New York Thought this would be a lovely addition to our collection because it shows um, it shows that uh, something extra that wasn't represented in the other um, images of Lena Horn that we have in our collection the photographer um, Is Florence Homolka, and she didn't have the easiest uh, life either, although you would think she might have. She was born to privilege. Her father was Eugene Meyer, the financier and um, publisher of the Washington Post, and her mother was Agnes Meyer, uh, the great um, arts patron. But it wasn't necessarily an easy childhood. She was the oldest of the Myers' uh, five children, and her mother was a difficult person to please. She was very much, um, uh, Florence Molga was very much attracted to theater and, and the arts. She studied dance in New York um, with the School for the American Ballet and also studied acting in Paris. She took a camera with her when she traveled in Mexico, and a family friend who saw the results really encouraged her to consider photography as a profession. And so she studied with um, the photographers Man Ray and also um, Walker Evans and embarked on a professional career in photography in either the late 30s or early 40s. It's not um, exactly clear when she began. Uh, she married a Hungarian, or not Hungarian, Austrian-born character actor, um, Oscar Homolka, um, in, 19th, in the 1930s. Um, their marriage was not a very successful one, and they, um, and they divorced when her two children were quite young. And she continued her career then as a photographer working in Hollywood. Her son has said that she felt she really had a mission to connect with her subjects to, uh, and to bring out their, um, their real personalities in unguarded moments where they were very much themselves and not in the spotlight. So she photographed many famous figures in Hollywood. But the images are always um, much like this one of Lena Horne. Um, not formal, but, um, but relaxed and, and designed to capture someone in that, sort of in that unguarded uh, moment when they 're just themselves and, and not the star, if you have uh, questions at all about the photograph or um, lena horn i 'll be happy to um, to try to answer them uh... did they know each other sadly this is one of those things where you'd love to know the whole story behind the picture and I was able to, um, to contact uh, Florence Homolka's son who was quite young at the time that this picture was taken and he doesn't really know anything about the circumstances but he said that his mother always got to know all of the people that she photographed that she spent a lot of time with them before she made their picture so you have to you have to sense that there was a rapport between the photographer um, and Lena Horn. I think in order to get this image but sadly we don't have, we don't have the story. Did Lena Warren have uh, good relationships or good friendships with some of her contemporaries? Well, she certainly, she, she and, um, she certainly had a, had a, had a good friendship with, with Duke Ellington, um, with Billy Strayhorn, um, not with Ethel Waters. Ethel Waters was, um. Was, you know, was older than Lena Horn, established, and a bit resentful, in fact, quite resentful of, of, of Lena's. Uh, you know, rising star. So the two of them were were in Cabin in the Sky together, and it was it was not a good it was not a, a good coming together. Um, she very much uh, she and Billie Holiday got to know each other when um, when Lena was performing at Cafe Society, and you know Lena said, of course, looking back, that she Lena had it much easier than Billie had, that she had had a much more stable you know. Home environment, even though it was disrupted by her mother, sort of coming and going, and her and her, um, you know, sort of her her grandparents being more uh, being stricter than her than her mother, but um, clearly nothing like what what Billie Holiday had had endured, and um, and then in terms of the you know sort of the civil rights movement, um, she was she attended the march on Washington. She was certainly connected um, connected there. Any thank other you questions? so much,
1: Ann.
0: Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs>